From Miami Law, I'm Aned Uges, and this is The Explainer. Many people think that robust process only protects the accused. And I think those people are forgetting that there are women who are raped or assaulted in schools by people, football players, who are Heisman Trophy finalists or winners, or by prominent faculty members, that schools also have incentives to be biased against victims. Welcome to Season 9 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Proposed changes to the existing Title IX regulations would weaken victims' rights. The author of the new book on sexual assault on campus, Professor Tamara Rice-Lave, judges the impact. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Tamara. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's just give us the ballpark. What is the what is Title IX? Okay, so Title IX was a law that was passed by Congress that prohibits um, sexual discrimination in educational institutions, and it's very um, it, it's a little bit vague. What's sexual harassment, et cetera, or what's sexual discrimination? And so, what's happened over time, over the past fifty years? is that the interpretation of what that law covers, what it means, has been hammered out both by the Department of Education and also by the courts. And so what has happened over time is it became extended to uh, prohibit discrimination against women in sports. And then now the court said, okay, well, it also covers uh, sexual harassment. And first it was just faculty to students and now it's students against each other. And so what we have now is we have both a definition of what constitutes sexual harassment and then also what schools need to do to both try to stop it from happening and then also how they should respond to it if it does happen. Okay. And under the Trump administration, there there were some changes that were made. Can you talk a little about those? Because you are the expert with your book coming out. My book's out. Your book out. (laughs) Yay. Yes. Uh, And you just had a a big article, a nice opinion piece in the Chronicle of Higher Ed. Thank you. So in, in, under the Trump administration, uh, let me stop back. Actually in 2011, the Obama administration said there's too much rape happening on campuses and schools aren't doing enough to respond to it. Both of those things were true. And so what they did was they tried to pressure schools into um, reducing, well, they, they would have said that what they were doing was trying to protect victims, but I believe the way they did it and not just me, other people did too, was they pressured schools to reduce, reduce procedural protections, which made it easier to find people responsible of sexual assault on campus. So for instance, they told schools that the standard of proof had to be preponderance of the evidence. So to find somebody responsible of sexual assault, you couldn't use clear and convincing evidence or beyond a reasonable doubt. What other standards they were using before, they needed to use preponderance of the evidence. So that's one thing they said. They prohibited direct questioning. So they they said you weren't allowed to have uh, any kind of informal resolution. And so what ended up happening was um, 
people were, students were found responsible and they said, hey, my procedure, I wasn't treated fairly. The school wasn't, wasn't, they didn't advise me of the charges against me. They didn't let me put on testimony. They didn't let me call witnesses. They didn't let me ask questions. And courts agreed with them. Courts mm-hmm. said, you know, what's happening? Many courts said what schools were doing was wrong. It was bad. It was unfair. And so what happened was when the Trump administration came into power under Betsy DeVos, they, for the first time of any Department of Education, they went through the process of promulgating formal regulations on Title IX, on sexual harassment. And so this had never been done before. There's something called the Administrative Procedure Act, which sets which which tells um, administrative agencies the way they're supposed to enact regulations. So if you think about a law, a law can be pretty kind of bare bones. It's the job of the administrative agencies, the Department of Education, right, the EPA, to promulgate and figure out exactly sort of the the hammer out exactly what that means in in multiple situations. And so what the Trump administration did was they went through something called the notice and comment process. It's informal rulemaking. They they um, published what they want with their proposed rules. And then they gathered they had a period of time in which comments were open and they got many thousands of comments. And then what happened was they um, formally promulgated um, formal rules and the formal rules told schools what sexual harassment was and the way they had to respond to it. So in my opinion, my 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 take on it was that much of what they did, was, well, first of all, I applaud the Trump administration for actually enacting these regulations in the right way. I think that's very good. The 2011 Dear Colleague letter, in my opinion, that they had, they had pr- uh, promulgated rules without doing it the right way. Okay. So I think that I, I applaud the Trump administration for doing it the right way. I think that they define they narrowed the definition of har- sexual harassment in ways that I believe were problematic. But they put in place robust procedural protections, which I think are good. Before we get too far, the Dear Colleague letter. Oh, the Dear Colleague letter. Okay, so in 2011, that's the thing where the Biden, the the under the Obama administration, the. Uh, Catherine Lehman, who was the head of the Office of Civil Rights, the Department of Education, wrote a letter in which she said, it's what I mentioned earlier, in which she said, there's a huge problem with rape. Women are being raped. Schools need to do something. And then that's when she started saying things schools need to do. And that's when schools started to, many people think, deprive people of necessary protections. And that's when the court said, this is what's happening is not fair. It's violating procedural due process. Okay. Um, so you're not a huge fan of the proposed Biden changes, I see. So some of them I like. Mm-hmm. So I think that Biden it, Biden expanded the definition of sexual harassment in a way that I think is good. So I, I think some of the things the Biden administration did are very good. Where I fault the Biden administration is they removed robust procedural protections in ways that I think are deeply problematic for not just the accused, but also for victims. The Biden administration acknowledges that there needs to be some kind of a process for testing the credibility of a complainant. Okay. And so, but what they say is that you don't have to do that through an adjudicatory process. The Trump administration had required for post-secondary schools that if there's an allegation of sexual harassment on campus, that it be adjudicated in a live hearing 
where both parties get to put on witnesses, where they get to ask questions of the of other of the witnesses. They have advisors. The advisors can through the advisors can question the other side. They can't. I mean, if I'm accused of sexual assault, I can't question my accuser, but my advisor can. Okay. And so they so there's this process. It's robust, right? You can ask questions. There's transparency. And the Biden administration said that post-secondary schools no longer needed to do that. So what they said is that they they said explicitly said that something that's called the single investigatory model was an acceptable means of adjudicating whether or not campus sexual assault happened. So the single investigatory mean, model means that there's one person, the investigator, the Title IX investigator, who interviews witnesses, gathers evidence, and then they determine whether or not sexual assault took place. In my opinion, that's a gravely problematic model. And the reason why is because of something called confirmation bias. Okay. And confirmation bias means that if you begin with a certain belief, the way you interpret evidence that you see after you form that belief, you interpret it to be consistent with your with your original belief. And so it means that if I believe that he did it, then even if witnesses say something contrary, I'm going to interpret what I hear I'm going to minimize it through the, you're going to see it through that lens of your preconceived corrections. Okay. And, and, and confirmation bias is, it's just a fact about human cognition. I mean, you, it's not like people are intending to be the problem with biases, unintentional biases, like implicit bias or confirmation bias is it's not intentional. It, it means that you can have a title nine investigator with the best of intentions. They are trying to be fair but because of confirmation bias, once they formed an opinion, they just simply it's, it's very difficult for them to be to continue to be open to evidence. Right. And so it's much better than to have the person who's gathering evidence, gather the evidence, write the report and then have somebody different panelists listen to evidence being presented to them and determine what happened. So mm-hmm. so. The first major problem is that the Biden administration explicitly greenlights the single investigator model and schools like it because it's in a, it's efficient, it's cheaper, it's easier. Right. Okay. So that's the first thing that I think is gravely problematic. And by the way, confirmation bias is not just a problem for the accused. It's a problem for victims too. I mean, if you have the star football player who's accused of an offense of, of sexual assault and the person for whatever reason, thinks that the accuser is lying, once they've formed an opinion, they're going to have a difficult time hearing other evidence to have their mind changed in a different way. So that's the first thing that's problematic. And the second thing that's problematic, which is related to it, is the the Trump administration, excuse me, the Biden administration acknowledges that there has to be some mechanism for evaluating credibility. Under the Trump administration, you do that through cross-examination, right? Direct questioning. And the Biden administration says it's not necessary. Parties can submit questions that the investigator asks and that that's a way of figuring it out. But those people are not trial lawyers or they're not people who actually sat in on these hearings. Mm -hmm. I, I have been an advisor and sat in on these hearings, not just for the accused, but for complainants as well. Mm -hmm. And so 
what happens at hearings is you 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 listen to you you have an opinion about what you think is going to be said from reports or whatever but at the hearing people actually speak and they say things and you listen to them and you formulate questions based on what they said and so and you if you were there at what happened you are going to know whether something's relevant that the Title IX investigator simply could not know. So, I mean, I'll give you an example from my, um, from, I mean, I've had this happen in hearings, but I sort of give you an example from when I was a public defender. I had a client once who was charged with domestic violence. He was a, a minister actually. Mm-hmm. And the evidence from the police report looked overwhelming. The His daughter said that he had hit or, you know, um, abused, physically abused, Uh, his ex-wife. And he said, I'm not taking a deal. I'm innocent. I said, well, why not? You know, the the police report. And he said, I'm innocent. I'm not taking a deal. So he went to trial. So pre-trial, me, the lawyer, thinks the evidence looks like he did it. We go to trial. The the woman test, the alleged victim testifies. And she says something on the stand. And he says to me, she's lying. I can prove it. And he gives me a letter or something. Mm-hmm. And so I impeach her. And not only was my client found not guilty, but the judge made a factual finding of innocence. If he hadn't been there to hear her testify, right. he wouldn't have been able to, to, he knew that what she was saying was wrong. I wouldn't have known it. Right. An independent person wouldn't have known it. And so it's, so it's, it's problematic to not realize the importance of listening to evidence, formulating questions based on the evidence. And the other problem too is even if, so the, so the, the Biden administration allows adjudicatory hearings, but they don't allow direct questioning through advisors. They say you have to submit a question to the hearing person, but the hearing person doesn't know what's relevant and not relevant. They may not let a question be asked. So it it's, it's critical that there's no harassment at hearings. Mm-hmm. It's critical that 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 a hearing panelist stop harassing questions from happening, but they should allow the parties to ask through their advisor the questions because they know what matters. Right. And you also, I mean, part of the reason why cross-examination works for testing truth is because of the rhythm of questioning. It's if you get, if, if I gave you written questions, you, you could talk with your lawyer and figure out how to write the answers in a way that's helpful for you. If you're on the stand being questioned, and you have to think right then, it's harder to lie when the questions are being asked and you're responding to them. So that's that's problematic. And the other thing, frankly, is I actually think having both parties present listening makes it less likely that people are going to lie because they know if I say this and she's listening, well, she can counter what I'm saying. Sure. So I, I think that that it's a grave, grave, grave mistake to not require live adjudicatory hearings with witnesses, both because of bias and also because I, I just think it's there's no way that somebody that you can when you submit questions, you don't know you don't know what they're going to say. And mm-hmm. it could be the tone of voice that makes a difference. Right, right. And if the person who's listening to it doesn't know what to look for. They just simply, it cannot be as an effective mechanism at getting at the truth. Okay. So why would the Biden administration want to change the way the rules are? I think it's a twofold reason. I think the first reason is that they don't want to put too much of a uh, an onus, excuse me, too much of a burden on schools. Mm-hmm. That hearings are more time consuming. 
Um, and they just want to make it easier for schools to adjudicate it. It's more efficient to allow this, uh, you know, single investigatory model. So I think that's partially what's motivating them. And then I think the other thing that's motivating them is people talk a lot about how traumatic it can be for the victim of a sex crime to sit in a hearing and they don't want them to be go through what's called the secondary victimization. Okay. And I mean, I am sympathetic to that, but in my opinion, the stakes are so high here. The consequence, the consequence of being found responsible of sexual assault on campus, you're not going to go to prison for it, but you can be suspended or expelled. Mm -hmm. And sure, there are some people for whom if they're suspended or expelled, they have other pathways to a, a vibrant and successful life. Mm -hmm. But people that are there on a scholarship, they lose the scholarship. Their life is is dramatically changed. The and, and when you are adjudicated responsible and people think you're a campus rapist, that has serious reputational harm as well. So I think the consequences are serious enough so that we should try to make sure that it's true it's that fair. we should give the person the chance to ask questions. And I think the solution to the problem of the secondary victimization, the potential for trauma is you prevent, you ban aggressive and harassing questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, already schools allow there to be, and, and the Biden administration under the new rules would require that if people want to have a hearing, if they, if they offer a hearing, if a school offers a hearing, the parties can be at different places. They don't have to be in the same the complaining witness doesn't need to be in the same room with the alleged perpetrator. Mm -hmm. They can be in different places. She's allowed a support person. Mm -hmm. They should have a, 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 a hearing panelist who is in the same way that a judge is, is listening to the questions, stops them if they're harassing. In addition, the ABA task force that I was a part of, we recommended that there be the equivalent of a pretrial hearing where there's, you know, they, they discuss if they're going to bring in some kind of questioning or evidence, which could be difficult. So for instance, the Biden administration would, under the new proposed rules, they allow there to be questioning about someone's prior sexual history, if it's relevant to show consent or that somebody else did it. Mm -hmm. And so that should be though, those kinds of questions, whether you can ask those questions should be determined before the hearing right. itself. And so, and so in other words, I am, 100% sympathetic to the need to make sure that the that the tri that the hearing is not harassing but we know that not everybody tells the truth mm -hmm. we know that the stakes are really high and so i think the solution is that you should have the questioning make sure that the questioning is not in a way that is harassing you know, having someone thrown out of school and then just say, well, it's not prison. Well, for the person who's thrown out of school, it's a serious life-changing consequence. Sure, sure. Uh, anything to add in closing? Buy that book. Yeah, buy the book. But <laughs> I just, I guess what I would close in is, I, I think that my experience with this is that people think, many people think that robust process only protects the accused. And I think those people are forgetting that, there are women who are raped or assaulted in schools by people, football players who are Heisman Trophy finalists or winners or by prominent faculty members that schools also have incentives to be biased against 
victims. And those victims, you know, they don't want to just count on the Title IX investigator asking the question they ask. They want to ask the question. Right. And the other thing is, you know, I had the the pleasure of being and the privilege of being a reporter on an ABA task force in 2017. And we were a group that was not just, you know, there was the a lawyer for one of the Duke lacrosse players. He was on our on in our group. But there was also um, a person who was a victim of sexual assault in law school and created a, uh, her name's Laura Dunn. She created a law firm called Serve Justice, S-U-R-V Justice, like survivor justice. Mm -hmm. So, and we had someone who was, I mean, we had pro-victim people and we, we as a group passed by consensus detailed recommendations for robust process because we all realized that both sides benefit from robust process. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for My coming. pleasure. Thank Bye. you so much. Take care. See you soon. Okay. Thanks for joining us for this season of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's new SJD degree, designed for scholars and teachers of law. For more information, visit miami.law.edu.